recording this on Monday after releasing the episode of the podcast you're about to listen to, because a kind listener pointed out to me too and to me that we stupidly or maybe ignorantly uh, talked about Judge Preska as having issued the stay order in the Hamilton Bank case, when in fact it was Judge Denise Cote. Me too, I have nothing to plead in my defense other than laziness, ignorance, and some combination of those two things. Do you have any pleas you wish to make in your defense? Uh, the only plea I need to make is that it was my mistake and not yours. Oh, no, and... I know. I made it, too. I'm quite confident <laughs> I talked about Judge Preska. That's because we've been reading a different opinion of Judge Preska in a different sovereign debt case. And it is terribly embarrassing. I remember that the first draft opinion I did for my first clerkship, I um, used the name of the district court judge incorrectly. And I, I think we were reversing the district court judge and we reversed the judge with the wrong name. I, I almost lost my clerkship that first day. So anyway, apologies to the judges, apologies to any listeners who might have caught this. Uh, I suspect if you were like me, you you didn't catch it, but some of you clearly are on the ball. So apologies. Hi, me too. Hi, Mark. I heard the, uh, when I woke up this morning, I heard the the emergency podcast gong go. It it woke me from my slumber. And it's actually not a gong. It's more of a gentle chime, which is okay, because this is actually not an emergency. But um, something interesting that we thought would be fun to talk about, right? Well, I I think maybe this is more of an emergency from the creditor perspective, particularly if you are somebody who engages in holdout creditor type actions in the New York courts. Uh, like I think you, you yeah, <laughs> I think you, you might uh, have high blood pressure from seeing this. And so maybe that's, a you know, if we're worried about our friends in the holdout community having high blood pressure, then it's a little bit of an emergency, I would have to say. Good point. I concede. You are 100% correct. <laughs> All right. But do you, do you want to set it up for us so that, you know, because this hasn't really gotten a lot of attention, best I can tell, uh, because I am guessing uh, either other people don't think it's an emergency and we can explain why we think that there are potentially some important implications, or other people are a little bit confused about the implications, like we will reveal we are, and uh, either one of those two things might be going on. That's a good way to a good way to put it. And I haven't seen that much yet in the press. I, I think maybe the Alphaville, the FT had something. I can't, I can't remember. Um, but but so we've talked about this Hamilton Bank lawsuit against Sri Lanka before. And I think we've been puzzled by it from the outset. And and I think what's happened since we last did a not emergency slash emergency podcast about it is that Sri Lanka 
having basically run out of ways to delay um, delay the case by throwing kind of let's call them barely plausible arguments at the case on the merits. It lost all of those. It's running out of time. And so it then it just up and asks for a six-month stay. And a bunch of governments, the French government, the British government, they filed a, a brief in support of that request. It didn't really say much. It was you know, like, yeah, the, the, it's complicated, restructuring is hard, but it, it didn't say anything of any particular substance. And then the U.S. government also decided to file a statement of interest, which I had expected to be more of the same kind of mealy-mouthed, not much of anything. But the, the U.S. actually came straight out and asked uh, Judge Preska in the Southern District to give Sri Lanka the six-month stay that it uh, that it asked for, and and just a couple of days ago, she did, which um, I think is a defensible thing to do, maybe. But um, there were some parts of the opinion that confused me, and I wanted to kick us off by uh, saying what was confusing to me about this whole thing, and uh, asking you what you thought about it. I don't know if I have I summed it up uh, about right. Yeah, I I, I think everybody is. Uh quite confused i i um all i would say is uh, i found the briefs filed by the us uk and france uh, puzzling in the sense that they were all asking for the stay but really just not very uh, deep or substantive in terms of explaining why the stay uh, should be given. But, you know, clearly they explained it well enough to get the court to do it. So all yours. Yeah. No, I, I think that's right. I mean, it's this, the question of why it's so important or why this lawsuit would be so threatening to the restructuring process, I don't think has ever really been answered by anyone, and I'm still confused about it after reading Judge Preska's opinion. But I, I, to me, I was going to ask you two questions, and I think they're really more or less the same question, but maybe they let us talk about slightly different things. And I've been, I've been confused by both of them. And, and so one aspect of my confusion is that I'm not entirely sure what Hamilton Bank stands to gain by rushing to get a judgment the way it has, you know, normally that would be kind of a stupid thing to do because it takes a long time to get your judgment satisfied and post-judgment interest is so low. That deterrent is not present or it's not very strong given how much higher interest rates are. But it's still a little bit strange why Hamilton Bank would be pushing for a judgment so quickly. So Judge Preska, in her opinion, talks about how there's a risk that Hamilton Bank might get priority over other creditors. And that didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. The judgment doesn't give you any priority. You only get priority if you can. You have a judgment, you find an asset, and you get a writ to attach to that asset. And you know, nothing, no six-month stay is going to prevent Hamilton Bank from being first to secure that kind of writ if that's what it wants. So this this reference to priority, I thought, was kind of confusing. So to my mind, the benefit that Hamilton Bank gets is 
the thing no one involved in the case, including Judge Preska, has has mentioned, which is that I think my in my view, if it does get a judgment, then it is immune from any restructuring of the underlying bond. The judgment's a, a separate source of rights. And even if the payment terms of the bond, for instance, were to be modified, uh, the judgment would be uh, enforceable by Hamilton Bank anyway. So I, I'm confused, though, because no one is talking about what it seems to me uh, to be the main benefit. So that that's part one of my confusion. And then part two is sort of the flip side of that, which is I'm confused about whether there's any risk to Hamilton Bank of having its lawsuit stayed. And the reason I'm puzzled is, you know, it's got a 25% stake more than a 25% stake in the bond. And so presumably it could have blocked any restructuring vote that proposed to modify payment related terms. And it still holds that stake. And, you know, that all would imply that it doesn't have much to fear from a delay, right? It, just like it could before, it could. It still has the power to restructure, to veto a restructuring proposal. So I'm confused. Maybe, maybe there's some restructuring possibility that people aren't talking about. It occurs to me to wonder whether, through clever use of exit consent, Sri Lanka could uh, effectively coerce Hamilton Bank into participating in a restructuring. But I, I've got these these sort of twin sources of confusion. I don't know why Hamilton Bank was pushing so hard so fast to get a judgment if it didn't think the judgment would immunize it from a restructuring. But then I also don't know why it wasn't already immune from a restructuring. And so I'm hoping you can help me think this through. <laughs> I'm just laughing at the thought that I could answer any of these questions because they're my questions too, but you articulated them much more clearly than I would have. So let, let's start with the first one, and then maybe I, I can throw out some possibilities and you can tell me whether any of them sound even the least bit plausible. So first, I was completely befuddled with the idea that having the judgment would somehow get you priority. Uh, that that because uh, it unless, doesn't, right? Like, yeah, it doesn't. Uh, unless the you know Judge Preska's a fancy federal judge, uh, maybe there's something we're not understanding, or maybe there are some assets that are you know, fat, wide, and happy and ready to be seized, although these people are so far ahead of anybody else in terms of getting into court and getting all of the defenses kicked out. You would think they, they, they're they still going to be first in line if there are assets to be obtained. So that uh, that really puzzles me. And then, I, I you know, I kept thinking, well, maybe... There's all this stuff in the briefs, the government briefs, and in Preska's opinion about comparability of treatment and how this might cause a problem with that. That all confused me too. Uh, but it seems the way I've always understood how comparability of treatment is understood is that nobody cares if the country has judgments against it, what they care about 
is whether or not the country pays the judgments in full or pays them at the same proportion that they pay everyone else. And so getting a judgment doesn't make it necessary that we wouldn't have comparability of treatment. So is and that right? Fact, can I? Yeah. And if a creditor were somehow through cleverness or luck to find and attach and force an execution sale of assets over the sovereign's objection so that the creditor got paid in full through asset seizures, that too, I think, would not violate the comparability of treatment principle because the sovereign is not voluntarily paying the creditor. Right. Right. So that this so now, now can can we move to speculating about why why the judgment might give an advantage? Yes, please. Uh, okay, so here's here's three things that occurred to me. One, in the opinion they 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 set out the amount that Hamilton Bank owns and it's slightly if i remember correctly and i i regret that i don't have it in front of me i think it's slightly less than 25 percent. so in all the prior papers that i've seen it said approximately 25 percent, and i assumed they were above 25 percent. but they're actually slightly under like almost ten thousand dollars under uh 25 percent. Can, can i just how can that possibly be like I, I I read this too, and I'm also puzzled. But how can you buy like twenty four point nine eight percent? Like I don't know without don't without a bunch of people getting fired anyway. I don't know, but maybe. So I I'm, I'm just wondering. Maybe they're just they couldn't buy the last bit, and everybody in the market knows, and they won't sell it except at a super premium. And so maybe these guys really are vulnerable to being crammed down by everybody else who's pissed off. This seems completely implausible to me that there wouldn't be at least some tiny subset of creditors who'd be asleep and wouldn't turn in their votes. But maybe maybe the bonds are structured so that if you don't vote, it's a positive no, vote. No, but no, they, you don't no, never no. do that, right? I, I was looking in the indenture. I think it's that way for the lower voting threshold, the the you know, non-reserved matters. But for reserved matters, there's language that's super clear that says like, just to be super duper clear for the avoidance of doubt. So it's this is the 75% uh, uh, for the uh. avoidance of doubt, not only of the outstanding securities represented at such meeting, but of all the securities outstanding at that time. Now there's not a, yeah. So, or, and then the written consent is everybody. So it, if somebody is asleep, they're still going to count. But also, if there's like a tiny doofus who's asleep at the switch, they shouldn't charge like that much of a premium to get you over the 25 Right. I, th so they, 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 this was so weird. I read that number. I'm like, what the hell is going on? This is not what we have been told. Okay. So that's one possibility, which doesn't seem plausible. Now, the second possibility that also I'm thinking not so plausible. So the second possibility is that this uh, extra time could enable Sri Lanka and its lawyers, Clifford Chance, to 
do an exit consent offer where they don't need uh, where 25% cannot block the exit consent you would need uh do you remember is it um two thirds it's two thirds, right? So they need, um, they would need one third. And it's like, given that they can't even get to 25%, they're not going to get that, um, that higher percentage. And, but the, but what has um, puzzled me about the exit consent option is that I don't really see that many things they could threaten the bondholders with that they would do via the exit consent that would make the bondholders unhappy. You can't reduce their payment obligations. So you could like modify other stuff like governing laws, sovereign immunity, but here you need 75% to modify that stuff too. Unlike way back when with Ecuador is, is that. Yeah, so that's right. I mean, it's I was going through it and I haven't spent that much time looking at it. But, you know, the things that would most terrify a creditor that was planning to sue you, you know, things like changing the sovereign immunity waiver, stripping it, stripping out the sovereign immunity waiver. Those are all in the reserved matter list along with the payment terms. So you would need 75% to do any of those things too. I mean, now I haven't spent that much time looking at this. Maybe there's something I'm overlooking, but it the list of reserve matters is pretty long and it includes stuff like changing the governing law, um, you know, redefining voting provisions, um, changing the submission to jurisdiction or the sovereign immunity stuff, you know, all of that uh, is in the reserve matter list. So you need three quarters to do it. So can I? So the, the, here's a question that I've had ever since I first looked at exit consents. Could you um, could you add a provision? So if could you look at the bond and say I the bond says says that there are all of these things that I may not do. Uh, you know, all of these foods that I may not eat. But it it doesn't prohibit me from I can modify the payment terms, I can modify the voting, I can modify sovereign immunity. But what if I just like added a little term? So for example, let's say I added in a sharing clause. Could mm -hmm. I could I do that? Because it doesn't prohibit me from putting in a sharing clause, which would mean that if Hamilton Bank got a higher recovery through their judgment, they'd have to share. I mean, I, I mean, I haven't even figured out how you would do it, but could you could you do something like that? Yeah, I mean, so I think I think the way just in 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 principle, not yet talking about whether it could happen here. I don't know. I guess you you do a, a exchange offer, and then the old bonds go in it trust and you know the the trust is empowered to enforce the sharing clause um maybe that's the mechanism so the the short answer is i don't know i'm actually not familiar with any cases in the bond workout context the only context i can think of is the consumer credit context where you know financial institutions often 
add dispute resolution provisions, often arbitration clauses. Um, and, you know, there's a change of terms provision in those contracts. And courts have kind of routinely, maybe not uniformly, but kind of routinely interpreted those change of terms clauses to let you modify the, you know, the existing deal terms, but not to add stuff. Um, so maybe you get maybe you get something similar here, although, you know, obviously there are reasons why you would be sort of more forgiving of of modifications in this context. The one thing I wanted to ask you about in connection with this, so I was just looking at the CAC, and it begins with the issuer and the trustee may modify, amend, and then I've highlighted the next word, supplement or waive yes. the terms yes. of the securities. Yes. And I don't supplement. I, I have, yeah, I have not looked at other CACs because I just noticed this. I haven't looked to see if that word is common, but it, my intuition, like, I feel like I would have, it feels unusual to me. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm just making that up, but it <laughs> no, feels no. like that word is not always there. I, I don't know, but what e, supplement, I mean, this is, this is it, right? I mean, sh- surely the, Sri Lankan lawyers are looked at the word supplement and danced a little jig because whether it's there in others or not, supplement sounds like I can supplement. So long as it's not at odds with, directly at odds with anything else, or but, I mean, but if I can, if I can modify, so that now I'm reading. Let me go back because I'm reading. I got it. I was reading the CAC. I want to make sure that that's the two. Th- yeah, I'm reading the two thirds provision, so I can supplement yeah. that two thirds. Right. That I mean, that seems nobody's ever done it. But if it explicitly says I can supplement, then I can supplement. I can, supplement seems to suggest I can add a provision, and I, I, so to go back to the consumer credit cases uh, our friend dave hoffman uh in the uh, i was talking to him about my contracts class this term and dave sent me uh, a case to use in class that is it's a case involving what are called bill stuffers have you heard of this <laughs> apparently yeah of course this is they often this is often where these change of term things come up and i deal i teach these cases in arbitration as much as contracts but yeah sorry go ahead oh no i i had never heard of this although clearly it's been happening to me all the time they sent when they send you your bill they say yeah you know we are allowed to supplement our terms and then they like add an arbitration provision and increase my interest rates and do other crap to me. And I'm just merrily going along, paying my bill and accepting all these terms. And uh, courts don't like it, but it seems like you can get away with it. Uh, is that right? Well, there are a bunch of cases that say if you don't have a dispute resolution provision already in the contract, even if it's not an arbitration clause. If it's like a, maybe if you have a submission to jurisdiction clause, then it's okay to add the arbitration clause. But if you didn't have anything about dispute resolution before, and you've got to change a terms provision in there, 
Unless it says something like we can add terms. You're I think some stuck. of them do. Yes, right? some of them do, but a lot of them don't. I mean, so then the courts are like, well, we're going to bend over backward to figure out a way to say you can't do this. Uh, so we we should, I mean, this is interesting. The supplement words, I, you know, I never focused in on the, the word supplement, but it, somebody put it in there for a reason. Uh, although, you know, we've seen enough inadvertent wording uses that maybe was an unthinking reason, uh, but it seems like it it is pretty important. So maybe that's it. Maybe that's it. Can I throw out one more possibility uh, yeah, here? So you and I have talked about this and uh, Robin uh, Wigglesworth and Alexander Skaggs at the FD Alphaville certainly have gone further down this rabbit hole than uh, we have, and maybe I went further down uh, than you were willing to go, which is this question of who the hell owns this bond? Now, the, there definitely seems to be something dodgy about the purchasers of this bond, at least some of them, who seem to have gotten assurances from the prior Sri Lankan government that they would be paid. There are all these photographs of uh some of the it's supposedly HRB people with Sri Lankan officials. Uh, um, and then in Sri Lanka's brief, they keep talking about how they don't really know who the real beneficial owners are and how they need to find out. So maybe Hamilton Bank does not want the real beneficial owners to be revealed and thinks that once they get a judgment, this whole all these all these Sri Lankan attempts to ferret out the meaning, the true identities will stop. And it, it, could that be could that be what's happened? Once you get the judgment, then it's pointless to figure out who's owning it. But maybe if you figure out who's owning it before and they happen to be like important Sri Lankan people or they happen to be important Chinese officials and China at the same time is, you know, promising comparability of treatment maybe extra time allows you to to unmask these people yeah so i've been, i've been wondering this too but what i'm i don't understand why so it's going to even if they get a judgment it's going to take them quite a while to enforce that judgment right to, uh, to find assets and seize them and so forth and all of that and i don't like if they're worried about being unmasked i don't know why that having gotten a judgment, that concern would grow any less. You know, you can unmask them after a judgment and they're going to be unmasked. And whatever the consequences to them are, they're going to be the same <laughs> pre and post judgment, aren't they? Like, if you're worried about that, if you're like desperately afraid what will happen to you if people realize who's really behind this, I, this just seems like a bad plan from the outset. Like, why? Yeah. Why would the moment of judgment give you any extra protection? I don't. I don't understand that. So, all right, I'm going to throw out one more thing, and then, uh, I mean, may, may, this seems completely. Uh, I, I don't even know how to make the argument. So, but forgive me, forgive me, listeners. And forgive me, Mark. So uh, I went and looked at the October 18th filing by Hamilton Bank 
in opposition to all these requests for the stay. And one, one of the things that they uh, they say is that, look, we're, we're willing to give you the six-month stay, but you can't ask for any more. And Sri Lanka refused that. Uh, and in some ways, that is that seems to be the key because the way the negotiations are going, even though we periodically see articles about how, oh, yeah, there's been agreement, blah, blah, blah. I mean, there's only four months to Judge Preska's date right, because the, there's already been delay uh, because of these court filings. And maybe it's just highly implausible that that anything will happen in six months. And so Sri Lanka is going to have to ask for another uh, six months and uh, Judge Preska is likely to give it. And then Hamilton Bank is like, no, that, that bad stuff can happen if we keep getting these six months. But I don't see any indication in Judge Preska's opinion that additional stays will be granted. And But I, I'm, I guess I'm still confused because I don't, if we can't put our finger on, so sure, all right, maybe, maybe it's true that they're not going to be able to get not just get a deal struck, but implemented within six months. So maybe if there is something genuinely to fear for Hamilton Bank, maybe the six months is not going to be enough for that to happen. But I, I like. I, if there's progress being made and if it looks like things are going to get wrapped up and there'll be a deal, I don't see why she wouldn't give them a, a brief stay. I was surprised she gave them this one, but she seemed to endorse it kind of wholeheartedly. Okay. So we are clearly, we're puzzled about this and maybe, maybe information will get revealed, but let, can we get um, maybe, maybe before we run out of time, um, can we get to what I think would cause indigestion to the holdout creditors, right? Because we've been in the weeds about what's really going on here, but there are some potential big picture implications of what we've seen. Yep, please. Okay, so here's here's my reading. Of, and I'm of sorry, the... you're, you're wondering what would be of concern to holdout creditors, or you're wondering what would be of concern to creditors who are otherwise willing to participate i think to hold out creditors okay uh, um but maybe you would tell me about other creditors as well so my reading of the history of us intervention is that us intervention in these kinds of cases happens very rarely it's very difficult to get them to intervene they're not willing to intervene except on the narrowest of grounds. And unless they're really big foreign policy uh, issues. And so, you, you know, there's the famous Jackson case involving China where the U.S. intervenes because this is important for U.S.-China relationships. There's the Paripasu case involving Argentina. There's the... Um, Praveen Banker's case, uh, where you know the, the Reagan administration's uh, foreign policy uh, direction changes, uh, 
I mean, I, I might be getting some of these wrongs, but they were they were a big deal, and there was a lot of effort that had to be put in to get the U.S. to to even think about indicating a preference for one side or the other. And I would have bet a lot of money that the stay for Sri Lanka is just not important enough for the U.S. to intervene. In part because, like, I can't figure out, like, what's the big deal if they get the judgment? So, Big whoop de doo if they have a blocking position, that that that's it. Like, why does the US care? Yet the US cares and the Paris Club cares. Like, I, I mean, there's some there's something going on, I'm convinced, something black in the lentils here uh that's going on. But but I'm putting that aside, does this show a shift in US government policy? at least under this administration, to being uh, really hostile to the attempts of holdout creditors to get a disproportionate recovery. And if there is a, if that, if we are seeing a significant shift, uh, then, then I would be very unhappy and have a lot of indigestion and high blood pressure if I were uh, a holdout creditor. Yeah, I mean, I think this is this is an interesting question, right? But it, isn't it kind of hard to see this as representing some significant shift? I mean, first of all, increasingly, don't you feel like the high returns are going to come not from investing in bonds and then keeping them out of a restructuring, but from other types of commercial claims or expropriation claims or things like that. I mean, I feel like that's where a lot of the smart money is likely to migrate um, in, in large part because of the aggregated CACs. But um, also, like, and, and so for people holding those kinds of claims, it's kind of hard to come up with a story for why they shouldn't get paid in full. You know, they, they didn't agree ex ante to some collective process that they're arguably circumventing now. So um, I don't know. That's one source for my skepticism. The other is like, I feel as if the U.S. government has been pretty careful, and certainly the federal courts in New York have been pretty careful not to suggest that the U.S. is an inhospitable place to get your claims enforced. And I, I think in general, that's the right policy. I mean, maybe some state legislate, legislators in New York haven't cottoned on to that yet. But, um, you know, it, it, it's, that would be such a radical shift. And I think in a lot of contexts, it would be politically controversial. And I, I don't know why the U.S. government would care enough about this. It doesn't seem like a big enough problem to me to suddenly start asking for stays everywhere and um, and in other respects, undermining what creditors are trying to do. The final thing I'll say is like, this is the, a weird scenario, right? I, I, I can't think of too many other restructurings where someone has like raced to beat the restructuring, raced to the courthouse to beat the restructuring. I mean, there are a couple people who've been doing that in Venezuela, who did that early for Venezuela. 
maybe some more now that things are, you know, dragging out so long and there's statute of limitations issues. But this is kind of a weird thing that Hamilton Bank is doing. So it would be a weird occasion to initiate some kind of policy shift in response to something that's a little bit crazy. Yes. So I, I the bottom line of our podcast is that we are very confused. Uh, I want to see Sri Lanka try to just nail these guys to the wall with exit consents. Not because I think there's a great case for doing that, but because I think it would make for a great deal of entertainment. And then I would be very curious to hear what Judge Preska had to say later about that use of exit consents if Hamilton Bank objected to it. Yes. So this is so cool because if Hamilton Bank had said, look, if you give them more time, they're going to try to screw us using exit consents. And if they had pointed, that, pointed, for example, to that language supplement, that they can do this because we only have a 25% claim, what would Judge Preska have said? Would Judge Preska have said, oh, that's okay. You know, this is part of the risk you take. Uh, you buy an instrument where exit consents are possible. This is part of the risk. Uh, I don't know. I, it's or with or when they do exit consents, if they do it, um, will Judge Preska say, "No, you can't do that." I I gave a stay, uh, but part implicit in the stay is you're not gonna you're not gonna engage in aggressive behavior during the time of the stay to squeeze my uh, my um, HRB friends. I don't know. I think that's implausible. I think that's open season on Sri Lanka trying to do whatever it wants. Well, there's not much harm. And I mean, there's no point in self-censorship here. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I assume there's no point in, in Hamilton making that argument in advance. I mean, it's not really it's kind of not ripe yet to decide, right? Until you know what happens, you can't tell whether it's improperly coercive or not. I've been looking while we've been talking, I've tried to pull up a few other bonds just to check and see how common that supplement language is in these older pre-ICMA bonds, at least. And I don't know, I found, you know, Venezuela had some of the non-aggregated CACs in its bonds, and there's the word supplement in there too. So maybe it's not as unusual as I think. But it does suggest that, you know, if you say supplement, clearly you can only supplement by adding new stuff. Yeah, right? I, I so, think that's, I think that's that's pretty important. If it says supplement, maybe that should be the title for our podcast episode. That'll can you supplement? That'll drive the traffic for sure. <laughs> Well, it's only we need a clever my mom who's listening. <laughs> I know. We need a clever marketing tie-in with like, you know, some protein powder, <laughs> nutritional supplement type of thing. Get get working on that. <laughs> well, thank you, Mark. This was really fun.